Oh, it's so great to sing, isn't it? To sing the songs of the children of God, the freedom that is ours in Jesus. I invite you to open your Bibles this morning to Acts chapter 8. Acts chapter 8, verses 26 through 40. And as you're opening your Bible there, I want to ask you a question. How do you like interruptions? You like those? Aren't they fun? Uh, how do you like interruptions when you're doing something important and you're succeeding at it? I mean, and all of a sudden you're interrupted by something else. And you're just like, right? Now, add one more layer on it. How do you like interruptions about something that you're succeeding at, it's doing great, and it is in the service of Jesus Christ? That's tough to handle, isn't it? And yet, in this account in Acts chapter 8, we're continuing in the story of one of the deacons of the church, Philip, who is up in Samaria, and a revival is taking place. I mean, these people who were kind of a mixture of peoples that the Assyrians had brought in 800 years before and Jewish people are kind of mixed all together and they have kind of a weird kind of cult-like uh, religion, at least uh, at the way that uh, the Orthodox Jewish uh, folks in Jerusalem would view it. And they're coming to Christ through the preaching of Philip. There is a revival happening and Philip, in the middle of that revival, gets interrupted for another assignment. Let's stand for the reading of God's word, Acts chapter 8, verses 26 through 40. And as we do so, as we make our way through this text, what we're going to learn are answers to three questions that train us in the sharing of our faith. We will look at how do I get opportunities to evangelize? What should I do when an opportunity arises to proclaim the good news? And then what do I do after I proclaim the good news? Okay, so as we read this, keep that in mind. Now an angel of the Lord said to Philip, rise and go toward the south to the road that goes down from Jerusalem to Gaza. This is a desert place. And he rose and went, and there was an Ethiopian, a eunuch, a court official of Candace, queen of the Ethiopians, who was in charge of all her treasure. He had come to Jerusalem to worship and was returning, seated in his chariot, and he was reading the prophet Isaiah. And the spirit said to Philip, go over and join this chariot. So Philip ran to him and heard him reading Isaiah the prophet and asked, do you understand what you are reading? And he said, how can I unless someone guides me? And he invited Philip to come up and sit with him. Now the passage of the scripture that he was reading was this, like a sheep he was led to the slaughter and like a lamb before its shearer is silent, so he opens not his mouth. In his humiliation, justice was denied him. Who can describe his generation? For his life is taken away from the earth. And the eunuch said to Philip, about whom, I ask you, does the prophet say this? About himself 
or about someone else. Then Philip opened his mouth, and beginning with this scripture, he told him the good news about Jesus. And as they were going along the road, they came to some water, and the eunuch said, see, here is water. What prevents me from being baptized? And he commanded the chariot to stop, and they both went down into the water, Philip and the eunuch, and he baptized him. And when they came up out of the water, the Spirit of the Lord carried Philip away, and the eunuch saw him no more and went on his way rejoicing. But Philip found himself at Azotus, and as he passed through, he preached the gospel to all the towns until he came to Samaria. Please have a seat. How do I get opportunities to evangelize? You may have been a believer for some time now and you're thinking, I just, the opportunities just don't come my way. Is it the world is just hard of heart or uh, is there something wrong with me? What's going on? How do I get opportunities to share my faith with others? And let me tell you that a consistent life of sharing one's faith is a prerequisite to getting more opportunities to sharing our faith. In other words, if you are not active in evangelism, you won't get opportunities because you just won't see them when they happen. Let me express this in Acts chapter eight and show you what I mean. In Acts chapter eight, verse five, we find out something about Philip. It says, Philip went down to the city of Samaria and what did he do when he went to Samaria? He proclaimed to them the Christ. That is, he is making known his faith in Jesus and how one can be made right with God through Jesus. Skip down to chapter 8, verse 12. When they, the Samaritans, believed Philip as he preached the good news about the kingdom of God and the name of Jesus Christ, they were baptized. What was Philip doing? He's preaching good news about the kingdom of God in the name of Jesus Christ. You see how he's actively sharing his faith and as a result, he's finding more and more opportunities. Look at this in the life of the apostles. Peter and John go up to, uh, go from Jerusalem to Samaria to check out this revival that's taking place in Samaria. And as they were leaving after they have checked it out, look at chapter eight, verse 25, and you'll see that the apostles Peter and John have this same heart that Philip has. Now, when they had testified and spoken the word of the Lord, they returned to Jerusalem. They there is Peter and John. Uh, yeah, Peter and John. They returned to Jerusalem. And what were they doing as they went back? Preaching the gospel to many villages of the Samaritans. A consistent life of evangelism is prerequisite to getting opportunities to evangelize. It, it kind of works on itself. If you are active in evangelism, you'll get more opportunities. If you are not, you will not see them. Uh, just to predict the story a little bit, skip down to, to Acts 8 verse 40. This is the end of the story we're looking at today. Philip found himself at Azotus after this episode with the Ethiopian eunuch. And as he passed through, what did he do? He preached the gospel, that is, proclaiming the good news 
to all the towns until he came to Samaria. So before, during, after, what is he doing? He's proclaiming the good news about Jesus. A consistent life of evangelism is prerequisite. If you're not active in sharing your faith, you won't have so many opportunities to do so because you just won't see that they're there. Now, in verse 26, we discover that an angel tells Philip to leave this exciting ministry of revival and transformation in Samaria to head south on a desert road. It's, it's 60 to 90 miles, depending on where you place Gaza, whether you're using the destroyed city or the rebuilt city. It's 60 to 90 miles away. Are you kidding me? Why? Uh, why? Do I leave this thing interrupted, this wonderful ministry where there's just people coming to Jesus right and left, and you're telling me to go down on this desert road? Now, you know, since there's some place names here, that I have some maps. First, I'm going to show you a picture this is not the road, but it's very close to the road, okay, to Gaza. And you can see they didn't have guardrails back then. But this is in the most wet of the rainy season in this region. And all you've got is a little bit of green in the valley. And you see there's a, a flock of uh, what appear to be sheep or goats there. And there's, there's just not much there. There's just not much there. Leave this exciting ministry of revival and transformation. He has to be going along this way going, I don't know why I'm here. Right? Um, <clears throat> now for maps. The red part shows you from north to south, Philip's journey from Samaria down to Jerusalem. Uh, it's about as I said, 36 miles. And then from Jerusalem over to Gaza is the blue part. And that's the road that Philip took. It's actually the road that the Ethiopian took. And somehow they end up meeting on this road, right? That's a distance of about 50 miles to Gaza. Then the green part shows where Philip ends up. He ends up in, in Azotus. And then it's 55 miles from Azotus up to Caesarea, and he preaches the gospel all along the way from south up to north, and he ends up staying in Caesarea for 20 years. So that's kind of the overview of Philip's journey. Uh, let me share with you some principles here. Obedience to God's revelation is a, necess is a necessary beginning to effective evangelism. If we're going to be effective in sharing our faith, we have to be actively obeying God's revelation. Here, it's an angel that tells Philip, because of the completed word of God, I think that those things of, the angel, of an angel appearing or of the... Uh, uh, spirit speaking in an audible voice. I, I just don't think that happens to us anymore. But we have something even more sure, the word of God and obedience to God's revelation is a necessary beginning to effective evangelism. Always growing Christians have something to share with others. 
Listen, if you're a Christian who's thinking, how close to the edge of sin can I get without falling off, how many opportunities are you going to find for sharing your faith? Answer, zero. If that's the bent of your life to think, how close can I get to the edge of sin without falling off, you're just not going to find that many opportunities for evangelism. If, on the other hand, you are looking into the Word of God and you're going, man, I want to know God more. I want to love Him more. I want to experience an intimacy with Him that is real and personal. How many opportunities do you think you're going to have for evangelism then? Do you see, always growing Christians have something to share with others. Now, in verse 27, it just so happened, and there's one, this is one of several in this account, it just so happened that there on that desert road was an Ethiopian. This is a man from the Upper Nile. It's uh, actually not modern Ethiopia, but more Nubia. I'll explain that in a second. He is a long ways away from home. In fact, he is about 1,140 miles from home when he and Philip meet up. He's, it's 1,200 miles from where he's from to Jerusalem. So you think that, uh, you know, Philip went a long ways to go 60 to 90 miles to go from Samaria down to Gaza. No, no, no. This guy has just started going home on a long journey. Let me, uh, this is... Uh, the, the one circle's where Philip is, and then the circle around Gaza, and then you see how it goes down to Egypt. Now, let me tell you something. You, you can wow your friends with this little detail. Did you know that there's two places of Egypt, Upper Egypt and Lower Egypt? And Lower Egypt is north, and Upper Egypt is south. You want to know why? Because the Nile flows from south to north. So, Upper Egypt is south, and lower Egypt is north. And this guy is from the very lower part of upper Egypt, right? Very far south. So here's a big map, and he actually lives just off the map there, you know, uh, 1,200 miles away. And it just so happens that Philip is interrupted by the angel and goes on this deserted road, and lo and behold, on this deserted road, this guy happens to be right there at that moment on this 1,200-mile journey. He's racially different, though likely a convert to Judaism. Did you know that there are Jews all over the world? That there are things like Chinese synagogues? Did you know that? Did you know that there are Ethiopian Jews? Uh, there is a, a, a Greek historian who lived right at the time of the book of Acts, who wrote this about the Jewish people. This people has already made its way into every city, and it is not easy to find any place in the habitable world which has not received this nation and in which it has not made its power felt. This guy had some connection with Judaism. I believe he was likely a convert to Judaism, though racially different. Here's a picture of some modern Ethiopian Jews. 
dressed with their phylacteries and the tefillin and all the rest of it, reading uh, from their prayer books. So here's this guy, an Ethiopian, racially different. Uh, and if that's not enough, he's described here as a eunuch. Now, this is a man who is different, in some ways, strangely different. I dare say that none of us has ever met a eunuch. He had been forcibly castrated and been, had been placed in public service to handle the treasury, which was a not uncommon practice. One wonders what he was thinking because in Deuteronomy 23.1, it says that no one who has experienced what he did, his castration, is, has access to the assembly of the Lord. They're not allowed to enter the assembly of the Lord. But maybe he's also thinking about Isaiah 56, verses three and four. Listen to these verses. Let not the foreigner who has joined himself to the Lord say the Lord will surely separate me from his people. What he's saying is, foreigner, don't worry. You're still in, you still belong. Let not the eunuch say, behold, I am a dry tree. For thus says the Lord, to the eunuchs who keep my Sabbaths, who choose the things that please me and hold fast my covenant, I will give in my house and within my walls a monument and a name better than sons and daughters. I will give them an everlasting name that shall not be cut off. Those are words of hope for a eunuch, aren't they? So here's this man, he's racially different. He's very different in terms of that, that issue there of his uh, uh, being forcibly placed into public service. It says that he is a court official of Candace, queen of the Ethiopians. That word Candace is actually a title rather than a name. It's the title of the queen mother in Ethiopia, which was an important position of responsibility. Uh, an important position of responsibility for the king. Who could he trust? Well, he could trust his mother, right? So he puts his mom in charge of the treasury and the eunuch is there to serve the queen mother in charge of all her treasure. Appears that this man was something like a secretary of the treasury, responsible for economic policy, the guarding of the crown's assets. He had come to Jerusalem for the expressed purpose of worship. That means he's Jewish. And now, according to verse 28, he's on his way home, seated in his chariot, and reading from the prophet Isaiah. And he's reading out loud, which was the usual way of the time when people read, uh, when they read, they generally read out loud. We know he's reading out loud because in verse 30, it says Philip hears him reading Isaiah the prophet. And the result of all of these things coming together is an opportunity for evangelism. God in his sovereign grace has directed Philip and the Ethiopian to meet right here on this deserted road, this desert road. Well, what should I do then when an opportunity arises to proclaim the good news? Uh, let me give you an equation. Divine enablement 
plus human sensitivity equals evangelism. That is God empowering us plus our being sensitive to the situation in appropriate ways leads to our being able to share our faith in Christ. After the angel directs Philip to leave Samaria for the desert road to Gaza, the Spirit himself now, in verse 29, directs Philip to join this chariot that is happening by. The Spirit says to him, go over and join this, this uh, chariot. But note the human sensitivity. In order to obey the Spirit, notice what Philip does. He doesn't argue, which sometimes in the Bible people have argued with God when he tells them stuff, right? Right? They do that. Jonah. Jonah argued with God, right? I don't want to do that. No, God te- the Spirit of God tells Philip, go and join this chariot. What does it say? Next verse. It says, Philip ran to the chariot. He ran in obedience to the opportunity. He runs alongside the chariot. And he shows care for the man. The, the, uh, what's really interesting is um, verse 30, that when, he, when he asks the question, he asks it with a, uh, a little Greek phrase that is an expression of anxious interest. Like, excuse me, are you okay? Just, just an anxious, very interested in the man, in the fellow. Very interested. And he leads with a question, and it was a great question. Do you understand what you're reading? He's meeting the man where he was, and may I say, he had no concern whatsoever what this man looked like. That he was black, that he was a eunuch, no concern. What's made no assessment at all on that, just ran to the chariot. And verse 31, the Ethiopian responds with openness to Philip. And may I suggest to you, people are open. Not everyone, of course, but many, many people are. And what we need to say is, why are we saying no for them and, and, and never speak of Jesus. We're saying no for them before we ever even open our mouths. Let me give you a little hint here. The scriptures open human hearts. The reading of scripture bears fruit to all who will gladly submit themselves to its teaching. And so we need to get folks to read the Bible. Uh, that's what's happening here. This man is reading the Bible and, and Philip's question, a great question, do you understand what you're reading, leads very naturally into this wonderful conversation that ends up with the Ethiopian putting his faith in Jesus. So what do we need to do? It seems to me that we need to get the scriptures into the hands of people and to ask them, do you understand what you're reading? You know, in our outreach table at the end of the long hallway, at the end of the gym, There's all kinds of supplies for you, and one resource that we have are all sorts of Bibles. We have Gospels of John in various colors addressed to various uh, different kinds of people. We have New Testaments and the Psalms put together that are in a little pocket size. We have whole Bibles for people. 
would you prayerfully grab up some of those resources to be able to give them to people this week and say, would you read? And, and even if they say, well, where should I read? That's when you might want to give them a gospel of John. But if they, if, 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 if they have a plan or they don't have a plan, say, you know what? You can read almost anywhere and we can talk about it. The scripture bears fruit to all who will gladly submit themselves to its teaching. So now, the Ethiop- it's the Ethiopian's turn to ask a question. Philip asks a question, and, and the Ethiopian answers his question with a question. Verse 31, uh, how can I unless someone guides me? And he invites Philip to come up into the chariot and sit with him. Now, it's important to note that this chariot isn't like one of these little two-wheel guys that can barely fit one person, you know, that picture you have from your world book encyclopedia. It's not that, okay? This is a thing that may be more of like a carriage type of thing that can hold at least three people that we know of because uh, the the Ethiopian commands the, the chariot to stop so that they can be baptized. That means he had to tell somebody to stop the chariot. And we know that the the Ethiopian and Philip were in the chariot together. So we know that it's at least a three-seater and maybe more, okay? And he's on a 1,200-mile journey. I would expect it to be, and he's the head of the treasury of Ethiopia. I would think he'd have something that would be at least uh, not completely uncomfortable for a journey such as that. We need to be ready, my friends, to explain the Bible to people just like Philip was ready. God has given this world, after he's given the gift of his son, he's given the world two great gifts. The scriptures by which we can know God and believers who can teach people the scriptures. Don't think that the explanation of the scriptures is for so-called experts. Yes, you need to get trained, and yes, there is training here in this ministry for you. But do not let your lack of confidence hinder you in explaining what you know. Give people the Bible and ask them if they understand what they read. And if you don't know something, well, ask Pastor Justin, right? No, If you don't know something, tell the person that you'll get back to them with some answers. And this is where the community of God's people is so helpful. You can discuss it in your small group or your ABF. And yes, your pastors are available to help you with tough questions. The point is, is that we need to be more engaging in people and the scriptures and to be able to help them to see what the Bible's really saying. Now, in verses 32 and 33, this is another just-so-happened moment because out of all the places in the whole Old Testament that this guy could be reading, where is it that he's reading? Isaiah 53, which is the clearest proclamation of the gospel of Jesus Christ in the entire Old Testament. Out of all the passages in all the Bible, the one that this guy just so happens to be reading from is Isaiah 53. And the Ethiopian asks a second question about verse 34, about whom I ask you, does the prophet say this, about himself or about someone else? 
This is the great question for the world's Jews. To have them read Isaiah 53 and ask them the question, about whom is the prophet speaking? About himself or about someone else? For a wonderful explanation of Isaiah 53, I'd encourage you to go to the YouTube and search for uh, John MacArthur and Ben Shapiro because Ben Shapiro had an interview with John MacArthur and at the end of that interview, uh, Pastor John gave the most wonderful explanation. It was beautiful. Of Isaiah 53. So I would encourage you to give that a watch. In verse 35, um, you see that Luke uses a little bit of irony here because in verse 32, it says in Isaiah 53 that like a lamb before its shearer is silent, so he, that is the Messiah, Jesus, opens not his mouth. And Jesus was silent before his accusers. And so we have this, he opens not his mouth, but verse 35, then Philip opened his mouth and beginning with this scripture, he told him the good news about Jesus. Do you see how Luke's using a subtle irony? The Messiah didn't open his mouth. Now Philip opens his and proclaims the good news about Jesus. And what was it that he said? Well, among other things, I think Philip likely began back in Isaiah 52, verses 13 to 15, to show that the servant's suffering and exaltation will benefit the nations, including Ethiopians. He then shared how the servant's rejection and suffering was taking the punishment that we deserve for our transgressions. That's Isaiah 53, 1 through 6, that concludes with all we like sheep have gone astray. We've turned everyone to his own way and the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. Then, I think he likely pointed out how the verses that they had just been reading, verses 7 through 9, reveal that the servant Jesus did this willingly and he experienced injustice in order to make us just and right with God. Then he probably pointed out Isaiah 53 verses 10 through 12 to show that God would make his servant's life an offering for sin to justify many and to bear their iniquities. Notice that it says here in verse 35 that he begins at this scripture. But my guess is that Philip ranged over lots of the Bible and over the recent events that the Ethiopian had no doubt heard about while in Jerusalem. The events of the death and resurrection and ascension of Jesus Christ, the events of the beginning and growth of the church of Jesus Christ, perhaps even of the revival that was taking place in Samaria. Philip met the Ethiopian where he was and proclaimed to him Jesus. There is no simpler explanation of what evangelism is than that. Meeting people where they are and proclaiming to them Jesus. So what do I do now after I proclaim the good news? 
It's obvious that Philip proclaimed quite a bit more to the Ethiopian than an explanation of Isaiah 53 and a proclaiming of Jesus' death, burial, and resurrection. He must also have explained the importance of baptism and how to grow in Christ because it's the Ethiopian who brings up baptism. Why would he bring it up if Philip hadn't already talked to him about it? And you might want to ask the question, why baptism if there's no one else there? Well, I'm going to tell you that I think there was at least one other person there, the chariot driver, but uh, it's a good question. Baptism is a public declaration, isn't it? It's saying we're not ashamed of Jesus. But it's also an expression of love for Jesus. We do what we get baptized because we love him. Jesus said, if you love me, you'll do what I command. And he commands us to be baptized. So it's an expression of love. And it is a representation of what has happened in a person's heart. When a person is dunked in the water, it's an illustration of what your life is like before you came to Christ, dead in your sin. You're raised up to live a new life through faith in Jesus. The Ethiopian should not wait for an audience in order to be baptized. He's on his way home where he will be the only believer in Jesus. So this is good and appropriate to do this. But this is not evidence for what I call stealth baptisms. Once in a while, there are people who will say to me, you know, pastor, I'd really like to be baptized but I really am not that excited about being in front of a bunch of people. Would you just baptize me kind of privately? We don't see any evidence for that in the New Testament, and this is not evidence for it either. Baptism ought generally to happen in the church with brothers and sisters in God's family present. There are very rare instances where there is an exception. However, in this case, there's a big difference between being not able to have people present and not wanting to have people present. And the Ethiopian, if we understand how he left the situation with Philip, we would discover it wasn't that he didn't want people present, it's that they just weren't able to have people present. Now, you'll notice if you have a modern translation of the Bible that we go from verse 36 to verse 38, and you go, well, what happened to verse 37? And you'll see that it's there in a footnote. If you're reading the uh, English Standard Version as I am, it's footnote number two that will tell you verse 37. Um, Why is that? The reason it's not there is because the best manuscripts of Acts do not have it. As you know, putting the Bible into verses happened much later than the writing of Scripture. So it's not that a verse has been left out. It is rather that a verse was inserted that was not there originally. There are a couple of ways to explain the insertion of the verse. One that makes the most sense to me is that later people concerned about the problem of phony believers like Simon Magus, whom we studied last week, inserted, the the people worried about that, inserted the words of verse 37 as some way of assuring that people who are real believers get baptized, but phonies would not. 
Of course, that did little to solve the problem and instead created others like me having to explain how we jump from verse 36 to verse 38. Going to verse 38 then, notice that both go down into the water. This is yet another example of the just so happens in the passage. They're in the desert, on a desert road uh, toward Gaza, on the road between Jerusalem and Gaza, and it just so happens that on this desert road, there's water sufficient for the two of them to go down into, likely a spring. It's difficult to conceive of anything other than immersion baptism here, since sprinkling and pouring could easily have happened without both going down into the water. Verse 39, as they come up out of the water, Philip, it says, the Spirit of the Lord carried Philip away. Paul will use this same word, uh, carried away, in 1 Thessalonians 4 to describe the rapture of the church, that we will be caught up with them to meet the Lord in the air. Uh, Philip is caught up by the Spirit of God. And the Ethiopian sees him no more, and he goes on his way rejoicing. By the way, let's just kind of hang on this verse a little bit here. He went on his way rejoicing. This is the genuine default position of the Christian, one of rejoicing. We might ask ourselves why we are not more rejoicing than we are. Why do we let circumstances, concerns, calamities, COVID, and the crosses we bear get the best of us? This Ethiopian had it right, rejoicing. And so, in verse 40, Philip finds himself at Azotus, which is 20 miles away from Gaza. The ancient, he's at Azotus. Uh, Azotus is the ancient Philistine city of Ashdod, a pagan place if ever there was one. In fact, all along the coast is paganism. And there's no record, let me back up here to Philip's map, so we're on the green part here. He goes from Gaza, which is the circle on the far left that's in blue, and he finds himself at Ashdod, which is the first green circle on your way north, and 20 miles away. And then he goes 55 more miles up the coast to a, to a city called Caesarea. All along this coast is paganism. There's no, and, and all along the way it says he preached the good news. He's proclaiming the good news in all the towns until he came to Caesarea. <clears throat> he had the same ministry in Samaria and hundreds if not thousands of people were coming to Christ. He had the same ministry in this desert road and the Ethiopian eunuch comes to Christ. Now he does exactly the same thing in all these towns and villages for 55 miles from Azotus up to, up to uh, Caesarea. And guess what? Not one word of a positive response to his preaching. Not one word. There's no record here of any positive results of Philip's ministry. And yet, 
Philip does exactly what he did in Jerusalem as a deacon, exactly what he did up in Samaria as, a, as an evangelist, exactly what he did with an Ethiopian on a desert road. He proclaims the good news wherever he went, and he wound up in the central city of the Roman province of Judea, 55 miles north up the coast, named after Augustus Caesar, and he will stay there for 20 years, his family joining him there where he will continue to proclaim the gospel of Jesus Christ. You see, effective evangelism is not measured by the number of converts or by the numbers or the nickels or noise generated. Effective evangelism is the rejoicing heart that is overwhelmed by grace that shares the good news about Jesus with other people in the power of the Spirit and leaving the results entirely up to God. So what kind of applications do we make? First, we should note that God is in charge of the details of life. All these just so happens. It just so happened that Philip met an an Ethiopian eunuch on his 1,200-mile journey homeward on a desert road. It just so happened he was reading from Isaiah 53. It just so happened that there was water. It just so happened that Philip ends up at Azotus. Those are not just so happens, but the determined, sovereign will of God being worked out in people's lives. The eunuch... I want you to observe, has nothing but questions. He asks in verse 31, how can I unless someone guides me? In verse 34, he asks Philip, about whom I ask you does the prophet say this, about himself or someone else? And then in verse 36, he says, see here is water, and he asks, what prevents me from being baptized? The eunuch had nothing but questions until he leaves rejoicing. Isn't that wonderful? The people around you who may have tons of questions are in fact, perhaps, the people closest to the kingdom of God. We don't decide for people before we proclaim the good news. We proclaim the good news wherever we go. Have you ever done that? You ever looked at a person and go, ah, I don't know, I don't think I'll talk to them. It's deciding for people before you ever engage in a conversation. Listen, this Ethiopian eunuch was a different color. He had his gender mutilated. He was a high official of a foreign power. If there was anybody you would shy away from, it'd be that guy. And Philip, the scripture says, ran up to his chariot, ran to it. And the gospel went to Africa. The gospel went to Africa before it went to Europe. The gospel went to a castrated man before it went to any Gentiles. What a powerful message for those in this era of sexual confusion about gender and gender identity. The good news is for you. Jesus will save from sin anyone who believes in him. Ethiopia 
was considered by many ancient historians, the historians of the period, they called Ethiopia the end of the earth. Do you remember what Jesus told the church in Acts chapter one, verse eight? You'll receive power after the Holy Spirit has come upon you and you'll be my witnesses in Jerusalem and in all Judea and Samaria and to the ends of the earth. We don't proclaim the good news as long as there are good results. We proclaim the good news wherever we go, which should be wherever God sends us. And if you are here, unless you plan to move, central Illinois is where God has sent you. I want you to think about the power you have of sharing your faith. First, the power of inviting people to read the Bible. Paul said to Timothy, how from infancy you have known the holy scriptures which are able to make you wise for salvation. There's power in the Bible. Invite people to read it. Secondly, there's power in questions. Philip asked a question, do you understand what you are reading? And it led into an entire conversation that led to the Ethiopian coming to know Jesus. Sometimes we are so filled with thoughts of giving answers that we've never thought that maybe the best way to be able to have an engaging conversation on the gospel is the power of asking questions. I asked the best evangelist that I know my wife, Carol, what are some other questions that she asks in order to open conversations? Here are some of the questions that she gave me. What is the hardest thing right now in your life? Tell me about heaven. Are you interested in spiritual things? Have you ever wondered what comes after this life? And how can I pray for you? Every one of those kinds of questions leads into, if there's openness there, into delightful opportunity to share the good news. Jesus did not open his mouth to defend himself. We must open ours, not to defend ourselves, but to proclaim him as Savior, Lord, and King. And I leave you with this last application. If you feel alienated, alienated from God, alienated from others, feeling like you are strange or weird or different, did you know that the gospel of Jesus Christ is for you? It's to to give you life, abundant life, to give you a relationship with the living God that you will be able to enjoy forever. An Ethiopian, a eunuch, a man of position in a government. And he met Jesus Christ on a a desert road. May I suggest that Jesus can meet you right where you are too. Heavenly Father, I pray that this instruction from Philip would help your people, help me,
to be more effective in the sharing of our faith. I also pray, Lord, that you would guide those who maybe are feeling like they're, the gospel is not for them to recognize that it is. That no matter what one's station in life is, we can be forgiven of our sin. We can be made whole. We can have a relationship with you that will last forever if we put our faith in Jesus Christ and what he did at the cross to forgive us from our sin. Lord, help anyone here who's not put their faith in Christ to to repent, to turn from the direction they're going, run toward Jesus and to trust him, to forgive them of their sins by what he did at the cross, to affirm that they believe in the death and burial and resurrection of Jesus, to give them life. And Lord, may we go on our way today rejoicing that the Father has sent the Son into the world, not to condemn the world, but that the world through him might be saved. In Jesus' name, amen.